Can we uh, take a quick break? Because I really have to pee. <laughs> After Keith pees, uh, we'll, uh, we'll get into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This would be a great moment for an ad read if we had sponsors. So if anyone <laughs> wants to sponsor the podcast, consider it so that we can take pee breaks. another episode of the MacGuffin podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are my co-host from San Diego, California. Cassidy Robinson, you are the host from Las Vegas and the king of awkward introductions. Okay, starting here with Keith violently critiquing me. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, and uh, it's going to continue. The I'm, I'm feeling on a hot streak today, so prepare for that throughout keith is feisty today today we're also going to be talking about once upon a time in dot 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 hollywood by quentin tarantino should i say ellipses instead uh and at the end of the podcast we're also going to be no you don't need to yeah what's the netflix homework, the netflix keith? homework is yang the wolf brigade yes which Fittingly, kind of goes with the Tarantino theme, and it's a Korean film, um, uh, and it's uh, a lot of uh, ultra violence and and uh, martial we're, arts. We'll so, to, whoa, whoa, slow down, Turbo. We will get to Yang the Wolf Brigade, <laughs> but we have some uh, uh, some housekeeping to do before that. You are jumping the gun, my friend. Uh, I believe before we get into any movie reviews, we have to do a little segment. That we call Obey Consume. Cassidy, I'm throwing it at you this week. I told you, I'm feisty. Yeah. Uh, what media have you been consuming uh, this week? Okay, so um, I was up late the other night, and uh, a friend of the show, Cade Brown, came home, and we uh, were just looking for something to waste time on, and we started watching a new show on Netflix called, oh, now I forgot what it's called. It's this new thing with Linda Cardellini and Christina Applegate. Uh, Dead to Me. Dead to Me? Yeah, that's what it's called. Um, Uh Have you started watching that yet, or looked at it, or seen a trailer? I, I haven't started watching it, but um, I've, a few people have told me I should check it out, that, I, that I'd that probably be into it. Yeah, I think we watched the first three or so episodes. It's interesting. It's It reminds me a lot of Six Feet Under. It's kind of like Six Feet Under light. Like, the basic premise is uh, Christina Applegate plays this um, well-to-do Angelino whose husband just died. And she's going to, like, a grief counseling thing to try and deal with it. She feels very alone. She's trying to raise her two kids by herself. And uh, she runs into quirky Linda Cardellini, who also recently had a tragedy. 
and they kind of get to know each other and she sort of helps her, you know, get her groove back or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you find out more and more about Linda Cardellini, namely, and this is, I guess, a slight spoiler for the first episode, but it's kind of the inciting incident for the entire show. Uh, namely, that Linda Cardellini's husband actually didn't die. <laughs> oh. And, uh, yeah, so, and then it just kind of goes from there. And um, it, it's it's kind of a show where I'm like, this would make maybe more sense as a movie premise than a show premise because I don't know how you I don't know how you uh, carry this on for an entire season of television. Um, but you know, I I think there's a lot of that going on right now. Um, yeah, like I I finished reading um, uh, Joe Hill's book Nosferatu, which is now a hit television series on AMC, mm-hmm. and I'm like wondering is this just gonna be like one season maybe two like i don't know how they'll Mm -hmm. stretch it beyond the store and i i hope they don't i i actually see think it would work really well as like a two season miniseries and i'm just yeah i i just am like i i feel like a lot of stuff right now is getting pitched as a tv show without longevity in mind Exactly, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. No, I mean, it's an interesting show. I kind of like where it's going. And I love watching those two actresses uh, play off of each other because they have really good chemistry. And um, they're just a lot of fun to watch. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's so premise driven right now that I'm just wondering where can it go ultimately. Um, And uh, 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 what's his name who played Cyclops? (laughs) Uh, James Marsden. Yeah, James Marsden plays Linda Cardellini's not dead husband. Um, so you know, there's some fun dynamics there too. Yeah, I. It's kind of funny that you say that because I wonder the same thing when I'm watching a show. Sometimes it's like, where is this gonna go? But honestly, like, that's not our fucking problem. That's no. the writer's problem. <laughs> like, we, we should just be able to sit back and enjoy it, you know, and not think <laughs> right. about. Well, what are they going to do once they get to season four? Like, oh, right, no, right. man, it might not even get a season four. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So that's my thing. What's yours? Uh, have I talked about the new uh, God of War yet? No, I don't think so. Okay, okay. I think I've been saving this one for a little while. So I, I, I know I'm so behind the times when it comes to video games, um, but I just got a PS4 last year. Because I really wanted to play the exclusive PS4 Spider-Man game. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I got it, I also got God of War, the PS4 exclusive. And I had played every God of War game up to this. So I was like, fuck yeah, I'm going to get that. And it fucking rocks socks. It is <laughs> so fucking good. So like I said, I've been a fan of God of War since the first one. Mm-hmm. And this game, they totally reinvent the game. Um, so the God of War trilogy exists as it is. Um, it, it involves uh, Kratos, the ghost of Sparta, taking on the Greek pantheon. Um, in the first game, he kills uh, Ares, the God of War, and ultimately assumes the mantle of God of War. Um, but they're basically like side scroller adventure games. Like they're they're not that complex. They're they're button mashers. Yeah. Um, 
you're you're moving from one side of the screen to the next. Hack and slash. For, yeah. For the PS4 version, they have made it to where it's no longer just a simple side scroller. It's it's like sort of a, a third person over the shoulder camera type of thing. Yeah. And it's way more open world than the previous God of War games. And the story they've really matured. Like the first three are basic, you know, edge lordy, like you can be the god of war and fucking kill everybody. You're right. soaked in blood. It's the most violent, brutal game I've ever played, which was one of the selling points of God of War. It was like if Mortal Kombat had a story mode instead of just uh-huh. um, you know, a fighting game. But this one, uh he Kratos has moved on to the Norse mythology. Um he's he's living in uh Midgard. Uh he has a son now. Um and his wife has just passed away. And so it the game starts off, you have to take your wife's ashes and spread it on top of a mountain. And that's sort of where the adventure kicks in. Um but it is way more in-depth at storytelling than the previous God of War games have been. Uh, there's subtlety and nuance that I didn't think someone like Kratos was capable of. And don't get me wrong, it's still brutal as fucking shit. So all of that good stuff is there for you. Um, but it's just like a much more mature look and a much more in-depth sort of gameplay. It still feels familiar. But they've just made it way more immersive than before. Uh, so if you haven't picked up God of War for the PS4, I highly recommend. Uh, yeah, I mean, I used to watch you guys play it. <clears throat> so if that counts, then uh, I uh, can kind of gather what you're saying. Okay, yeah, well, that's, that wraps up Consumo Bay. We did have a uh, survey that we posted to our Facebook account and on Twitter to all of our listeners to to answer. And since we're doing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, this week is our main review. I posted the question, what is your favorite Tarantino flick? And um, we got a wide array of different answers here and some kind of interesting questions posed to us as well. So I kind of wanted to go through these. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll just, I'll just, we only got one response on Twitter and it was from our friend Patrick. So I'll just post his... He said for him it was Kill Bill, Volumes 1 and 2. And uh, do you want to go through a couple of these here on Facebook? Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, Todd Flatland says, Pulp Fiction is one of the best movies of all time. Every other movie of his I've seen pales in comparison. Okay, I think a, um, a certain amount of people might say that. Jenaniya says Jackie Brown for the win. I think this is the only uh-huh. Jackie Brown vote. But uh, <laughs> interestingly, Jackie Brown has had probably one of the biggest reassessments of Tarantino's career. Um, and even with me, you know, I think coming off of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, which have a lot of energy, kind of youthful quality, and a lot of bad boy attitude, Jackie Brown seems very tame in comparison and a lot more story driven. And 17 year old me was kind of like, I don't know about this one. And then I saw it again as 21 or 22-year-old me, and I was all like, oh, no, this is actually pretty good. And then every time I'd see it since then, I've 
gotten more and more out of it and it has you know worked its way into my top three i need to re-watch it it's been so long since i've seen it i remember liking it i just yeah i don't remember it that well it's just a lot more it's a lot more chill it's a lot more relaxed of a movie uh ashley nicole says kill bill and Django unchained okay all right i uh, <laughs> It's funny. I think a lot of these you're going to see similar answers. Um, yeah. Although he, you know, there's only nine to choose from, unlike the MCU. Sure. Um, Katie Holverson says Django Unchained and Unglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. Don't make me pick one. <laughs> Don't do it, Cassidy. Don't make her pick. I, I, I shall not. Uh, Christopher Hole says Reservoir Dogs, which is an interesting. Uh, comparison to a lot of these because I, I I suspected and I was correct that we're going to see a lot more of the post Kill Bill stuff in these picks than we are the pre, um, specifically because you know the general age of the people who listen to the show and because we're kind of in a new cultural zeitgeist than nineties yeah, indie Tarantino. And it's one of those things where it's like, you know, your his reputation builds, so each new movie probably has more eyes on it than the previous. Right, exactly. But Christopher Hull, being probably one of the older people here to vote, uh, vos- voted for his first film, which I just rewatched recently, actually. Brad I mean, Page. as far as debut movies go, it's a pretty hard one to fucking beat. Yeah, it's 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 great. I, re- I remember one time Tarantino was on a panel. Might have been Comic Con. Might have been Sundance or something. I forget. But he was on a panel, and uh, somebody asked a question, like an audience question, of you know, how do you get noticed in in Hollywood? How do you you know, uh, really, uh, you, how does the cream rise or whatever? And everybody, all these other like older filmmakers on the panel were like giving like practical advice about like having your shit together or whatever. And then I came to Tarantino and he said, well, you just have to make a really badass film like Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so humble. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> uh, Brad Page says Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. The fan page, We Are Geeks and Proud of It, uh, said Kill Bill 1 and 2. I asked if anybody wanted to take credit for that answer, but um, nobody responded. Yeah, well, I mean, you also, like, you said it really aggressively and weird. Anyone want to take credit for this response? Like they were in <laughs> trouble or something. You, you, add, you added the inflection. I didn't. Uh, that's how I read it. Anyone want to take credit for this response? <laughs> Who owns this shit? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jeff Rousdower says Kill Bill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think Kill Bill is, is winning here in the landslide a little bit. Yeah, um, if this was popular vote. <clears throat> for sure. Uh, Chris Fowler says Inglorious Bastards. See, that's interesting because uh, Chris Fowler is a little bit older, but um, mm-hmm. but also Chris Fowler, uh, it, it makes sense that Inglorious Bastards would be his favorite. For sure. Last here is uh, Robert Barnett with Inglorious Bastards as well. Now, we did skip one because this is sort of a sub question that I wanted to pose before we get to our answers for our favorite Tarantino flick. So we're kind of going to give two separate answers, Um, but they might be the same. Who knows? We had a question here from Rachel Lee who says, confession, I've never seen a Tarantino film. Where do I start? And that's almost a more interesting question than the one I asked. But what is the best entry level 
Tarantino film, in your opinion? Lots I of, think... Like I said, the first half of his career is is kind of a different sensibility than the second half. I mean, I think that if I were to tell anyone where to start with Tarantino, I would probably tell them to start with Pulp Fiction. Okay. Uh, I, I, think, I think it... I mean, it's... I think everything he's done since has kind of tried to uh, d- it, at least accomplish the same goals that Pulp Fiction did. Um, and, it, you know, it's it's a cinematic classic anyway. Right. So it's, it's one of those thousand movies you have to see before you die kind of situations. Exactly. So I think it's a good place to start with Tarantino. Um, yeah, it gives you a good example of both his poppier side and his edgier side. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if you can get through Pulp Fiction, you can get through any of his movies. That's that's a, a good response, actually. I didn't think of it necessarily in those terms. I was trying to think of it more in the terms of like what's more likely to romance a non-initiated um, into his catalog. And while I think Pulp Fiction is great, I do think it is a little artier than a lot of his movies. See, I, that's kind of what I was thinking, too, at first was like, you know, what's what's his sort of most pulpy and, and most um, appreciative that way? You know, yeah, like what's his most, like, most popcorn film? film. But yeah. I think that would be kind of doing a disservice to Tarantino and his movies, because a lot of them, even though they have ultraviolence and, mm-hmm. you know, poppy dialogue, there's a lot of movies where... You know, there's 10 minute conversations and right. uh, rambling monologues and stuff. Yeah. So I think that Pulp Fiction is a better, sets a better expectation for what his other work is going to be than than some of his other movies. Okay. Um, I would probably still say as an entry level point, Kill Bill, which seems to be the audience favorite here. And I think that that is kind of an interesting middle ground because... That was the first film he made after the 90s. And I that think that was actually my first answer, by the way, was Kill Bill. Well, for the for this specific question. Yes, for this yeah. specific question. But I thought about it and I, I changed my answer last minute. No, I mean, anyway. your your points are valid. Uh, but I do think that there is still a little bit of that kind of nonlinear storytelling and, and some of the stuff from from the Miramax days that carries on in Pulp Fiction or, or sorry, it carries on in Kill Bill. But it also kind of looks forward into his more specific genre territory. Uh, totally, I, I think. In when you were talking about Tarantino, I think that Kill Bill is is an obvious demarca- uh, demarcation point. Like, yeah. there's everything before Kill Bill, and then there's everything after. Yeah, um, and and I think that is, I think that's a great reason why that would be a starting movie because uh, yeah. It, it definitely encompasses uh, sort of everything he's all about. Yeah, especially if you're watching both, you know, Kill Bill's one and two, because the first one is a lot more of sort of a kung fu uh, uh, martial arts film. And then the second one being a little bit more spaghetti western, which is, you know, two genres he's been kind of combining his whole career. And it has the gangster stuff in there as well, which is more like his first couple films. Now, if we're going to favorites... Yeah, my answer change gears. Yeah, my my answers for this um, would be Pulp Fiction. Um, for all the reasons you stated, 
and I think that it's the most timeless and and I think I like those artier aspects of it. I think mm-hmm. you know Tarantino, and especially early on in his career, the first couple films was uh, highly influenced by like French New Wave and sort of uh, the Europeans take like the '60s and '70s European take on '40s and '50s film noir, mm-hmm. and that sort of perspective really informs those first two movies that he's kind of gotten away from since like he's less interested in that and he's moved on to other things, but that's kind of my favorite Tarantino. Uh, and I like, I like the, 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 the triptych, um, aspect of it, the sort of anthology film aspect of it. And, um, I think, yeah, it just, it just, it kind of gives you the gamut of everything he's capable of. And, and I think it has his most timeless scenes and some of his best performances and yeah, it just has a ton of energy. So that's why it's, my favorite. Uh, so, uh, go, switching over to favorites, um, I'm going to mirror you, actually. Uh, my favorite, or, or reverse you, I guess. Uh, I think my favorite is Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. Now, I'm counting them as one movie. Well, um, so does he now, well, controversially. Yeah, well, <laughs> otherwise he's like hit his 10 films or whatever. I don't... Right, right, but right. But I, re- I really do see them as one film... That was released over a year apart. Well, that was the idea. Was like they just had too much footage, and it was the only way they could do it. Yeah, yeah. If we're counting them as one movie, I'm gonna say Kill Bill because it is this insanely epic, sprawling story. Uh, it is him at his most poppy and commercially sensible. Yeah, um, but he doesn't lose that edge that makes him Tarantino. Right. Um, and it's just like Uma Thurman is such a fucking badass. It's yeah. just a cool fucking movie. So, like, if I'm just randomly like in the mood for a Tarantino, but I don't know which one I want, I'm probably gonna pick Kill Bill because it's just so much damn fun. Right? Uh, not that you know all of his movies aren't fun to a certain extent, but I just—it's probably the one I think about the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and just appeals to my sensibilities the most so agreed i think kill bill's probably my favorite i think if you look at like the latter half of his career where he has these kind of like hero movies you know Mm -hmm. uh specifically kill bill and glorious bastards and django unchained um those are kind of the most like hero driven action movies I, i i think kill bill is the most successful at doing that of those three i agree completely and yeah, I mean, I. It's honestly though it, a toss up between that and Pulp Fiction for me on any given day. Yeah, and sort of everything else is under that. Yeah, I for a hot minute, Inglorious Bastards almost snuck in there because I do really love that movie. Yeah, there's but. a lot of great stuff in that one. Uh, Reservoir Dogs, I think you know, considering that's yeah. his first film, and it's certainly uh, very, a lot smaller of a movie, and you know, the budget. The seams show a little bit more because he was working with, uh, you know, a $2 million budget or less. Um, For sure, yeah. Um, and there's a little bit of, you know, greenery around around uh, his, but, his directorial pa- uh, prowess at the time. But it's but still... But I think all of that is, is great because it, I think, Reservoir Dogs... Um, such a calling movies, card. Yeah, for sure. But I think Reservoir Dogs is probably him at his best as a writer. 
Mm -hmm. And all of his other movies show off his directorial abilities a little bit more. Yeah. Um, But because of Reservoir Dogs' budget, um, because I don't know if he had that necessarily uh, fucking arrogance that he has now as a director, that I think, you know, he had to let the writing sort of speak for itself a little bit more. Right. than any of his other movies do. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, my top four is easily those those four movies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, well, cool. This uh, sets us up really well to get right into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, this is the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino, written and directed, and it takes place in sort of a fictionalized version of 1969 Hollywood, where we follow Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, a uh, falling star who grew up um, on a television series, sort of a hokey cowboy show where he played played like a sheriff or something. And um, uh, he's seen his best days behind him. The show got canceled. He tried to make a uh, run for the movies, was in a couple B pictures, but never really quite or made that successful transition into film. And so now he's playing the bad guys on other people's shows. His uh, like, pers- like bad guy of the week, kind bad of. guy of the week. Yeah. So unfortunately, he you know he just kind of pops up to have a little bit of gravitas on other people's shows and then get killed and then move on to the next show. <laughs> and that's sort of how he's maintaining his career. Um, his confidant is Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt, his personal uh, stuntman, and Cliff Booth is also his chauffeur and his gopher. Because he recently had his license revoked for drunk driving. And uh, uh, we see early on that though they are really close and have known each other for a long time, they live very different lifestyles. Cliff lives in a trailer behind drive-in theater over in Van Nuys. And Rick Dalton lives in a giant mansion right next to the home of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. Now, if you know anything about Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski and their home in Hollywood in 1969, you know that they see a grim fate come that August um, with the uh, the Manson family. And But the movie, even though it was sort of uh, uh, marketed as being about that, is not really about that at all. Um, that is sort of framing this whole this whole uh, story that, that Quentin is trying to tell here, but it's really ultimately about uh, Cliff and Rick and their relationship and sort of their trajectories in Hollywood. And um, it's a, it's a lot more, you know, kind of funnily going off of our discussion of, of uh, you know, Quinn's earlier films and sort of his different sensibilities and where he's been in his career. We kind of see him coming full circle again. So now that he's, you know, he went from the small indie films that are much more dialogue driven and a lot more character driven into these larger action films and these sort of hero driven things. Um, I once heard Quentin say in an interview when Kill Bill first came out, he said of Kill Bill, this is the film my characters would be watching. <laughs> and in a way, I kind of felt like Quentin's never really left that extra layer of heightened sensibility since then. I've always felt like he's been in the world of movies the characters from Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs would be watching. And in, in, now I feel with this film, we're kind of back down to that slightly more realistic tone again and a slightly more kind of laid back 
character-driven um, atmosphere. This is one of the most laid-back films he's done since Jackie Brown. And I'm interested to, to know how the sort of newer generation who grew up post-Kill Bill is going to take all of this in. Because if, you're, if you go to a Tarantino film for hack and slash and dismemberment and, you know, and you think of Tarantino primarily for his violence and for, you know, the gratuitous uh, action sequences, there's a lot less of that in this movie. Now, it eventually gets there, but mm. it takes a real long time to get there. And this, more so than any of his other movies, is more of a mood piece. There's even less dialogue you know, per page than there is in, in, uh, other sort of talky Tarantino films. There's a lot of yeah. just kind of soaking in 1969 Hollywood and sort of the celebration of that time. And sort of, uh, in a way this kind of feels like a Tarantino daydream, um, which yeah. I loved and I really, really like this movie, and I and I I can see me like Jackie Brown kind of getting more out of it the more and more I watch it. Um, but I don't know if that sensibility is going to play as well for like the Django fans. What do you um, think? It's it's funny that you mentioned uh, that Pulp Fiction was sort of Tarantino at his most um, European because I this one to me feels the most sort of like Italian realism kind of Tarantino. Uh, I I was kind of conflicted about this movie, to be honest. Um, okay. Uh, there were things I really liked about it. Um, mm -hmm. There were, like, I loved the characters and I loved the, I loved the sort of, I think this has some of Tarantino's best snappiest scenes. Um, it has some of his best building of tension. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I kind of feel like this movie writes some checks that it doesn't cash. And I think some of that comes from uh, the, the Fantasia elements of, of the movie. I don't know. I, there, I, this movie, I think I, I know I'm going to have to see it again. I also wonder if it needs to be as long as it is, uh, considering how it's, it's almost a three hour buildup to sort of one scene. moment, but I don't know what I would cut either. Right. Uh, so it's not that I had a problem with its slower pace, uh, or, or the fact that it's more meandering, um, I just feel like this there's sort of a promise here that never gets really delivered on or at least in a way I was necessarily satisfied with and uh I also think that there's some moments that are pretty problematic in this movie uh it, now I know that's sort of sort of obvious when talking about a Tarantino film he's never sort of shied away uh from writing stuff that could be considered controversial sure but especially in sort of a uh in in a post harvey weinstein world uh who was tarantino's longtime producer 
There was some stuff that made me a little uncomfortable about this movie. Can you elaborate, or is it a spoiler? Uh, I don't think it's. I don't know. It's it, it's not a. It's not sort of the spoiler. I I feel mm-hmm. like there's one really big spoiler in this movie. Uh, but like sort of calling out the the underage girl. It felt very smug uh, when Cliff asks. Uh, so he picks up this hippie girl, this hippie hitchhiker, and yeah. she offers to give him a blow. Uh, uh, Brad Pitt's character, Cliff Booth, yeah. picks up this hippie girl, and she offers to give him a blowjob. And she he asks to make sure she's eighteen mm-hmm. and uh, has to have an ID before he'll do anything with her, which right. obviously she doesn't do. And it just felt because especially in the sixties, like I seriously doubt that a character would I do that, but right. Uh, it just felt really a little too on the nose. You know what I mean? Okay. Uh, I can see how the, the, the Weinstein controversy would color that scene for you. I was not in that brain space. Oh, I couldn't uh, help but be. When and well, that's what I mean. Like it, it's sort of like because I. What wasn't did you really think? For- did you think the scene was uh, was like speaking specifically to the critics who thought that uh, Tarantino was culpable, or that's sort of what it like felt he like was to trying me. to say, like, hey, like you know, this character would not do the things that. Yeah, yeah, like, like, see, I'm responsible. Look at me. I'm gonna make sure this girl's 18 before having an illicit sex scene. It's just weird to me in a way that I didn't need to have called out because it it did bring all that stuff to mind. Also, in a movie where one of the characters is Roman Polanski, yeah, uh, and one of the characters, uh, uh, Rick Dalton, is obsessed with this idea of becoming friends with Roman Polanski and being in one of Roman Polanski's movies, which I understand that of the time, of course you would want to be in one of Roman Polanski's movies. Yeah. But again, this particular scene with the hippie hitchhiker draws all that to mind in a way that I'm like, I kind of wish I had, this hadn't gone there, but you know, I guess, I guess it is him. I don't know. It just made me feel weird. Uh, And, the stuff with the the Roman Polanski, which obviously Tarantino is a huge fan of, of it just made me feel a little weird. And and there's sort of this uh, mystery behind the uh, backstory of Cliff Booth that yeah. also just there's a lot there's a few things that are problematic with women in this movie uh, that I that normally I don't notice and maybe it is just because of the times um but it 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 called attention to itself in a way that that made me feel a little weird in this one okay that's interesting i didn't have those problems um and i think for me it's largely my my co-worker took it as a dig specifically at polanski uh it could have been i i I think i don't i don't think it is i don't i think I think you and your coworker are, are overthinking it. I, th- I, I honestly think. I don't know, man. <laughs> I mean, well, here's it's just like, here's the deal: is I think that uh, one because you know there is the the more spoilery 
reveal that I don't want to give away because it it does have hinge a lot on like what the movie's about and stuff. Um, yes, but there's been a lot of criticisms towards when the movie does get violent and how it gets violent. I I, I was aware of these criticisms before seeing the movie, so which I'd rather have not been, but you know I went and saw it. And with these kind of things in mind, back in when it premiered at Cannes, a sort of unfinished version of it premiered at Cannes and Mm -hmm. did pretty well there. But there was some writing that came out about how Margot Robbie, who plays Sharon Tate, um, how little dialogue she has and what her role in the film is and how it plays. And so there was all of that kind of leading up to this, too. And I feel like a lot of people, because of the Weinstein thing... Because of, um, you know, also we did we never came up when we talked about Kill Bill, but there was that kind of like this whole deal about mm-hmm. Uma Thurman getting in an accident and like her and Tarantino kind of like not talking for a couple of years and now they're talking again and she may even do another Kill Bill movie with him. But there was this kind of like, I saw this thing sort of happening in the press of them sort of waiting with their knives out for yeah, yeah. a Tarantino fuck up. Like they almost wanting a me too or something to happen because and I'm I'm not speaking to Sharon Tate's portrayal in the film. I I think that is exactly what you're talking about. That is sort of a yeah. uh uh social justice warrior trap of like her role in the movie is what it is. Uh, Margot Robbie is a fucking adult and a great actress, and she signed on to the movie mm-hmm. knowing what it was. Also, uh, she's great in this movie. Like she is, yeah. She has. So, I mean, yeah. She, she she's not one of these hyper verbose Tarantino characters who's just you know monologuing the whole time. But that wasn't Sharon Tate, and um, she has one scene in the film where the you know the camera is like in love with her, and she you know her actually, go yeah. yeah going in and watching one of her own movies. And it's one of the most endearing heartfelt scenes I've seen in a Tarantino film. Like one of the most like, um, sentimental scenes. Yeah. It in definitely a Tarantino like film. a love letter. Uh, but I, I, I mean, in a I large a- way, uh, you know, the portrayal of, of Sharon Tate, and maybe this is what some people like took as a negative and I see as a positive. He, he sort of, um, sort of like traps Sharon Tate in Amber. You know, as as we remember her from that period, and mm-hmm. and she sort of has this almost deified angelic presence over the whole movie, um, and I and I was kind of taken by that that sort oh. of uh, uh, respect to to that actress and sort of how this movie, in a large way, is sort of a love letter to Sharon Tate, even though she's more of a um I mean, symbolic gesture in the movie than I, maybe a fully realized character in the way that Cliff and and uh Rick are. So I and I cuz there's also this uh controversy now from um Bruce Lee's daughter Sure. Yeah. not a fan and stuff and and I did that not, stuff bother you as much cuz there's one sort of comedic scene in the film where where uh Rick or, no Cliff Cliff uh, has a little tussle with with a fictionalized Bruce Lee, and so it kind of makes I Bruce Lee out to be like this like egomaniac who who whose bark was lighter louder than his bite. But I understand the, uh, of course, why 
Bruce Lee's daughter would be offended by the his portrayal. Sure. Uh, to me, to me, his portrayal in the movie was meant to serve a purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, to to tell us a little bit more about Cliff's character. Uh, exactly. You know, he's, he's a total foil. So I didn't have any problem with that. Plus, it's a pretty funny scene. It's yeah. It's I think one of the best scenes in the movie is that whole exchange. Exchange. Yeah, that whole sequence of events is there's uh, um. Great. There's okay, another so, scene with Bruce Lee later, too, that's not in the mind of Cliff that portrays him quite differently. And that well, okay. put me on this. Well, that well that puts me on this whole other thing uh, that, go, that goes into that, like, larger critique of, of uh, violence against women in the movie and things like this. I don't think Cliff is necessarily a good person. We learn very early on something pretty shocking about his past or something that's like in question. Mm-hmm. And that I for whatever reason, when people are talking about this movie, and I know that we're not too far from it, so maybe people just haven't like considered this angle yet. I think he's not a reliable narrator in the movie. And I think that that, that the, what we know about the character or what is in question about the character should color everything we see from him in regards to women for the whole film yes yeah i i agree with that uh, and i and, and, and so i, I no oh, I, go ahead so okay all of this like that wasn't my problem those issues that i've heard from other critics weren't my criticisms with them. okay um but i i have something i want to ask you but i don't know how to do it without being at least hinting at the spoiler so I guess spoiler alert. I'm not gonna say it, but um, given the context of this movie mm-hmm. and the way the events play out, again, spoiler warning. I guess given given what this actually happens in this movie, and given what happens to Sharon Tate in real life, mm-hmm. based solely off of the information that's in the movie in the film. Mm-hmm. What is the point of Sharon Tate's character? What do you it's mean? Interesting to, well, it's interesting to me because the entire tension of the movie is based around uh, uh, what we know about member, the historical event. Exactly. An audience member having a, a explicit knowledge of what actually happened. So I could see that someone who might not know really anything about Sharon Tate, uh, seeing this movie and going okay uh what the fuck was that all about what is the final shot of the film i mean i'm not i don't want you to actually say that out loud but think about what the final shot of the film was this movie is not about sharon tate now i said i I said in a way in a weird way it's kind of a love letter to her because it, it i understand that but i mean so her character doesn't know any of the other characters her story isn't interweaved at all where most of the story is about Mm. rick and cliff right so if you take that historical context away which you can't for this movie at all which is interesting to me Mm -hmm. um her character is literally just this blonde actress who lives next door to cliff it's i i and i don't know that i i i appreciate it in 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 a 
at a certain point in the movie, I actually expected it based off of the ending of Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, this isn't the first time that Tarantino has approached history from a revisionist point of view. Yeah. Um, the difference between this and World War Two is literally everybody can see a World War Two movie without explicit knowledge about the events of world war ii to understand the ending and appreciate it whereas in this one you literally have to have outside knowledge going into the movie that's true and 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 that's why one of the reasons why i I said i don't know how well this is going to play for people who are uninitiated to these obsessions uh these tarantinian obsessions of hollywood in 1960s you know the mood, the change from old Hollywood to new Hollywood. How uh, television worked back then. How celebrity worked back then. Um, you know this this the tension between uh, Cliff and and um, Cliff and Rick's generation versus the hippie generation, and like all of that stuff, totally informs what this movie is in a weird way. This is almost kind of feels like Tarantino doing a P.T. Anderson impression. Yeah, but I I feel like the difference is that P.T. Anderson gives you all the context you need within the film. I think I you get it here. I don't know that this movie does. I mean, and okay. Th- and that was, that was my big problem with it was the whole time I was trying to view it from someone without knowledge of what was going on. Mm-hmm. In, in all, almost all of the cinematic tension relies on that knowledge and to me that was a little bit frustrating but the movies i wouldn't say tension oriented like if this was a thriller Uh, parts of it are parts of it are parts of it aren't if this was a thriller like a straightforward thriller where that's the whole thing and we're just working our way to that moment then i would say yeah that could be a problem because the the tension waxes a lot through the movie um, genre-wise, I don't know where you put this, which is also kind of unique for a Tarantino film, because even something like Pulp Fiction, which is pretty out there and arty and, and is, you know, breaking and exploring genre in a big way, is still, you know, a crime film pretty solidly. Um, uh, and, you know, whether it be Kill Bill in the, you know, Hong Kong action films, or whether it be the Spaghetti Westerns or whatever, like, he usually kind of, like, tackles a genre or a subgenre of a genre. This film, I think, is a lot more kind of free-flowing from scene to scene as far as what it's doing and what genre it's exploring. I'd say probably most broadly speaking, it's a comedy more than anything else. Um, mm-hmm. but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't think that the purpose of the film is to, like, you know, build attention toward it. I think more than anything, it is a... It's, it's, it's a story of these these two actors working in Hollywood and sort of their trajectories and sort of their redemption stories. Um, and okay. uh, it uses this historical event to as a as a way of facilitating those those trajectories. Um, and within that, there are thriller moments. And I think one of Tarantino's best at building tension when we're on the the park or the yeah the uh, whatever the grounds sure, yeah. with all those with all those Manson women um and such a great 
cast of side actors, one of the biggest casts I think he's ever had in a movie, and everyone and their dog literally shows up, uh, including yeah, like I, Lena Dunham and the girl who you were talking about in the car with uh, with uh, Brad Pitt. What is her name? Because I thought she was one of the standout performances of the whole movie. Uh, Margaret Qualley? Yes. I, be- I believe she was in The Leftovers. Uh, she was. And she was, I think she was also in uh, The Nice Guys, which this movie reminded me a little bit of. Um, Emile Hirsch is in this movie. Timothy Oliphant is in this movie. Luke Perry, his last performance before he died. Um, and I, this went from, and I, believe me, I kind of went on a little bit of a journey with this film because the first 25 minutes or so, I was kind of struggling with it because it was just like, setting up so much stuff it was just like this is happening this is happening this is happening this is happening that i was i it felt like it was kind of rushing and i was like i just want to like get into whatever these characters are and one thing i think tarantino's not good at writing is voiceover and narration and i every time this movie went into narration i just stop it stop it stop it um and i yeah, think i that i i think i actually kind of agree with you because it for what this movie is it feels really jarring to have those sort of whenever those happen there was something like that that happened in uh, hateful eight too um and it bugged me then as well and i and i think that this movie it it bugged me the most in this movie that i've ever seen it usually it's yeah i think it's kind of fun but in this case it stood out like a sore thumb because yeah and the rest of the movie is so like you said, it's so just trying to to capture the mood and the moment, right? Um, and I think for the most part, it is really successful at that. And and I did, aside from sort of the issues I had, I did really like the characters, and I was really entertained throughout. Uh-huh. I just there was something that didn't quite settle right with me. Uh, I do want to ask you one more thing before we totally move on. Okay. Um, do you think that there was meant to be a, a coded gay relationship between Cliff and Rick? Hmm. I felt like there were times when the movie hinted at it. Um, and I I think to me, I, I saw a lot of it, uh, but it was specifically coded because at that time to be, you know, a gay actor in Hollywood. Right, uh, you would have to, you would use those kind of codes. Right. Um. So, so to me, I I saw it, and I just know that you tend to pick up on stuff like that in movies. So I just was curious if you got any kind of reading there. You know that might have came up in my mind at some point in the movie. I think ultimately no, but maybe in like a Butch and Sundance sort of way, like where it's not, it's it's not said, it's not even necessarily implied, but it could be read that way um but yeah i I mean i i don't think that that's necessarily what they were getting at but it's it's definitely not off the table all right all right it might be worth it might be worth looking at uh, in that perspective um yeah i mean you know like i said it's 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 definitely there's an argument there to be made There, there was one of the i think the more interesting things to me was their relationship i mean Clearly, because this is such, uh, such a so much less plot focused than any mm-hmm. other Tarantino, and so much more character. focused on individual character. Yeah, um, that 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 their characters and their relationships stood out a lot to me. 
in sure. good ways. All right. Um, yeah, uh, I will, if we're going for grades, um, even though it's not a perfect film and there are moments in the movie, especially some of the editing is a little rough. I this Of all of the post-Sally Menke edited Tarantino yeah. films, this one I felt it the most. Um, I, that's what I wondered. It's like, I want to see a Menke cut of this yeah. because I, I think she was so good at capturing what he was trying to accomplish with a scene mm-hmm. without letting it drag in the way i don't think there would have been voiceover at all had she had her uh touch on this movie i think she would have i think she might have been able to say hey we got enough footage here we have enough scenes we can imply this without you having to talk over it um Mm -hmm. which you know i'm making a big deal out of it's literally like five minutes of the movie but it's a pretty annoying five minutes yeah so you know those two things aside for me this is an a minus movie largely because i just missed this Tarantino, you know, it's fun to see him do cowboy shootouts and to see samurai swords wielding and all that kind of stuff. But I think the thing he's always been best at is characters and being able to tell the story with the camera. And I think this movie facilitates the stuff I like from him the most. And I loved seeing Los Angeles uh, transformed back to 1969 with all the facades on Hollywood changed again and everything. And the um, way he plays with uh, archival footage is fucking amazing. Yeah, really, really cool. Um, yeah, some scenes kind of reworked and stuff, and he places the new actors in them uh, in sort of a Forrest Gumpy sort of way. Um, but yeah, I, I, I went from you know the beginning of the movie sort of frustrated to at the end of the movie just like loving it. So yeah, I'm I'm all in. I feel like i'm gonna need more time with this one i on i honestly don't know what letter grade i'm gonna (laughs) give this i i really don't i went i think it has some of tarantino's best like scenes Mm -hmm. like some of his best scene work but i was sort of i found myself pretty frustrated with sort of the 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 way things play out i feel like there was kind of a um a promise that wasn't fulfilled with this movie. Um, so I really don't know. I like, I, it feels disingenuous to give it like a lower rating. Cause I don't think it's a bad movie. Mm-hmm. It was just certainly ambitious. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and fun to watch him experiment. I, I think it's him. It, it challenges, uh, what a lot of what I think, like, it, the easier movie for him to make would be another, like, you know, war movie or another action movie. Or just to add a lot of unnecessarily action, uh, unnecessary action or violence into this movie. I mm-hmm. I think this is Tarantino at both his most restrained and his most ambitious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, even the language wasn't, you know, normally... No N-words. Uh, yeah, no <laughs> He's just getting criticized for everything else instead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but but there's there aren't really huge long dialogue you know monologues um it just it is i i mean it we're definitely gonna be talking about this one for a while in the film community oh yeah for um, sure i think this is going to be um in the conversation at least for the rest of the year when people are kind of talking about the films of the year and that kind of thing but i i do think i need some more time with it to really decide how i feel about it 
All right. I go, all right. I go from liking it to hating it, to be honest. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Never, never quite that extreme for me. Um, uh, uh, I, hate's a strong word, but uh, very, very frustrated with it. Okay. I will say this for, you know, people, younger people especially, um, who are not as familiar with all of his stuff. Uh, you know, if you're going in expecting Kill Bill, you're not going to get that. And I would say go back and watch J- Jackie Brown before seeing this movie, because I think that's his closest tone-wise to this. Yeah, maybe I, maybe I should re-watch Jackie Brown. It's been a while. Mm. Both right, great move- L.A. films, too. Yeah. Uh, All right. Let's move on to the Netflix homework. Ying the Wolf Brigade. Yes, go ahead and set that up for me. What happens in this movie? Okay, there is a lot of uh, <laughs> sci-fi futurism, uh, neo-futurism involving Korea that I still don't think I totally understood. Fair uh, enough. I'll break down as best as I can. Um, basically, it's it's in the future, and Korea is there's some stuff on a political scale. I I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it, it's <laughs> there. It's the future, and this takes place in Korea. And yes. there is, uh, there's this political state uh, uh, that is sort of pushing for like a reunification of of the, the North and South, and South. Koreas. Yes, yeah, and uh, that's being driven by this sort of uh, not shadow government, but but the state, the the, yes. the government, and. And within the government is this uh, are these factions. There is uh, so outside the government. There's this protesting group called the Sect. Uh, mm-hmm. They're protesting against the idea of reunification. Um, there is the government itself. I can't remember their name. Mm-hmm. And then there's uh, the special unit, which is this militant police force with these badass fucking armor suits. <laughs> Yeah, they just like they look like cyberpunk Nazis, essentially, or uh, steampunk Nazis. Yeah, Yeah. they look like villains in a Wolfenstein game. That's for 100 percent. Yeah, there's definitely meant to evoke sort of a fascist look. Yeah, they're fucking cool as fuck. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so there's this unit called the special unit and the government is trying to set up this one agent Lim as sort of a, a member with the sect to try and make the special unit look bad so that they can make the, uh, you know, playing political games uh, to try and make the reunification process look easier um, while taking care of this sort of independent special unit. Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty good setup. Uh, and then at a certain point, Lim has to kind of go on his own um to figure out what's really going on here. And in all of this muddiness of different factions and stuff, there's this rumor of uh, this secret organization called the Wolf Brigade, which is rumored to, to specialize in like political assassinations and, and sort of turning uh, the political situation in the, favor of whoever sort of orders it sure uh yeah i I think that's a good setup it'll do what did you think of 
uh, a Yang the Wolf Brigade. I, I think you know, going off of your description of the uh, of the order of events of the movie, and it is no accident that I had you set this one up. <laughs> uh, this is this is written and directed by Kim Ji Woon, who's a South Korean um, action film director. Uh, he did the Good, the Bad, and the Weird, which is a little bit of a crossover hit here in America in the like mid two thousands. He also did uh, a thriller called I Saw the Devil, which a lot of people saw. Um, he also did that uh, Schwarzenegger movie, The Last Stand. Did you ever see that one with Johnny Knoxville? Oh, interesting. It's, it's okay-ish for what it is. It's okay-ish. I'll say this. Kim Jong-un, of all of the um, uh, famous crossover South Korean directors, alongside Park Chan-wook and Bong Joon-ho, he is the most americanized or westernized of his of his brethren like he kind of he uses a lot of sort of western sensibilities Uh, and i don't mean western like cowboys and indians but i'm I'm, i mean like um you know american action movie sensibility in his there were times that i that this felt like a fucking mission impossible movie sure yeah or you know yeah exactly something like that or or uh you know there's a lot of blade runner in this movie frankly um, oh yeah, especially totally. when it comes to the dynamics of. I mean, because it starts a you know very large and you know when we're panned out and they're giving us like a lot of exposition over like what what's happening yeah. in the government and where you know America's essentially. At the beginning, like, I was a little worried. Yeah, it, it, it's a little rough. Was, then there's <laughs> you know these large uh, battle action sequences of guns ablaze, and uh, and then it quiets down quite a bit from that point and becomes more or less a detective movie. Um, Mm -hmm. and very Blade Runner-esque in that sense. He even meets, you know, a a woman in question who, you know, they build a very similar relationship that Deckard, uh, builds with, uh, um, Sean Young in the first, uh, Blade Runner. And, yeah, uh, there's, there's questions of identity. uh, femme fatale quality, because she's like. Yeah. Is she a good guy? Is she a bad guy? Yeah. And, and, and there's even. the sect? Yeah, there's even questions of identity with the lead character as well, this detective character, and it all mm-hmm. kind of comes around. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I I like that aspect of it more, I think, than the overarching sci-fi narrative. And- sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the sci-fi stuff definitely feels like a, a, a framing device, and I think a mm-hmm. lot of times kind of unnecessary. Yeah. Um, I I think you could have gotten the same movie without all of the exposition but i or, wonder if or plays, at least less of it but there's there, I wonder there are, if that plays a little better to a korean audience though because absolutely i i bet the a lot of the political stuff makes a bit more sense if you are aware of their political system okay. sure and and here's the deal i when i went to film school in california one of my professors was a Korean film critic and kind of a big deal over there. And, you know, she brought in, you know, like the cinematographer for Park Chan-wook and that kind of stuff. I helped her research a book on Bong Joon-ho. So I know a little bit about the Korean politics in their films. And a lot of their movies, even their big dumb action movies, are very politically driven because it's because of the political atmosphere of that area. And there's something there, I think it's called the Sunshine Philosophy or something like that, where there's a lot of their films 
are tackling the idea of unification with the North and South. If you've seen uh, Park Chan-wook's joint security area, that um, very explicitly deals with that. And this movie, in a way, does too. Now, it kind of has a different sort of take because the there's a bit of skepticism that's promoted here where the um, the reunification is not necessarily seen as uh, a definite positive or something to be yearnful for, like in the case mm. of joint security area. And I think the there's difference... There's a lot of gray area. There's, well, there's a ton of gray area. And also, like, the unification that does occur is not seen as um, necessarily a positive thing. Um, or and, it's, and, and there's a lot of, like, government intervention that is somewhat fascistic. So... I think the big difference between the sunshine philosophy as it you know used to be presented in Korean film, and it'd be very interesting to have this conversation with with my old professor Nam, is what's happened recently in in Korea with mm-hmm. Donald Trump going to North Korea, talking to Kim Jong Un, and then the new president of South Korea now in talks with Kim Jong Un, and this sort of alliance or truce has been breached for the first time in decades. And I think that, you know, that whatever's going on there, and I can't, I can't speak to it. I don't know exactly what are being, what's being written in the papers over there, but Mm -hmm. now this thing that they've wanted to happen for so long is finally happening, you know, through the uh, machinations of Donald Trump uh, to a certain extent. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think the South Korean president was playing him. Um, but now you see this kind of more skeptical um, approach to the reunification, which is fascinating. And, 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 and essentially and what's think, just a big action movie. Well, and a sp- uh, but I also think it speaks to what you were saying about him uh, directing movies with a very Western sensibility. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the idea of a shadow state trying to play uh you know the people against each other yeah is it fair it's like i said it a lot of it i think played very like mission impossible to me Mm -hmm. um in this case the impossible mission is reunification yes yeah i mean that's true uh and all of that stuff that you said is very interesting and i didn't know any of that going into this movie i just thought it was a pretty fucking badass it's cool. <laughs> sci-fi <laughs> uh, action flick. <laughs> it's a little hard to kind of follow, like, who's on whose side. There's, like, double cross, triple cross stuff going on. And I'm, there's, like, two or so action scenes too many towards the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. There was a, there was a logical ending point, and then it kind of keeps going. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's true. But I think I th- it garners a lot of, of it, it goodwill for me, though, because it earns the action sequences because they're mm-hmm. so well fucking shot. Yeah, I I don't know how, like I mean we talk, it's sort of a stereotype about American action movies and like how we love action and stuff, but there's sure. not that many great, uh, like director American directors that are that great at directing action, because mm-hmm. um, we tend to uh, zoom in too much, uh, yeah. shaky cam, uh, the the action isn't in focus a lot of times. Whereas yeah. this, it's like. It's beautifully shot. I thought the cinematography yeah. was so fucking cool for like 
the sewer very scene. moody Rude. very noirish yeah and there's a lot of and when they do get into the big shootouts and that kind of stuff not so much at the beginning when it's just kind of these like clusterfuck wars but like later on when it's more like these hot pursuits and stuff there's a lot of really cool choreography going on yeah the the scene uh the the scene where she was like supposed to set him up was mm-hmm. so fucking badass yeah that that was like the the Mission Impossible scene to me was like oh yeah I could see Tom Cruise doing this shit mm-hmm. yeah I uh I I like the movie a lot there was a moment in the movie a point in the movie where I had to just kind of stop trying to follow it and just sort of turn my brain off and just enjoy the pretty colors because I actually there I actually was followed it better than I expected mm-hmm. like at the beginning I was like oh here we fucking go. And about halfway through, I was, I was having a little bit of a hard time keeping up. Mm-hmm. Um, but once they sort of simplify it, and you, you do start to figure out, like, oh, okay, he's our main good guy, right? And oh, he has to, you know, he's teaming up with her now. And oh, okay, the douchebag in the suit is the m- main bad guy. Like once yeah. I sort of got the the pillars uh, of. Uh, yeah, it was no never difficult to know who was good and who was bad, per se. Yeah. My issue was there's all these, like, different political pawns and these different factions, and I was having a little hard time kind of remembering how all of those affect each other. And so when it got into the double-cross, triple-cross stuff, I was like, well, yeah. wait. So, like, in this scenario, if, if so-and-so <laughs> is double-crossing so-and-so, then, like, what does that mean for this like political machination? So yeah, there was yeah I, that I kind have of a stuff. Bit of a hard time. The board game rules like, got a little difficult sometimes. Mm-hmm. And and I think I think that probably does come from us just not being as aware. Yeah, totally familiar with. I think some of that does cut probably come from us uh, not being totally familiar with the situation. Um, so you know sci-fi is usually reflecting on society and 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 usually sci-fi even though it's presented in the future is very of the time Mm -hmm. um and so in this case we might not have been able to appreciate all of that because we're sort of outsiders looking in absolutely yeah i mean it's it's a translation of a translation at this point but Um, that being said i think there's still enough badass fucking armored bullshit going on that (laughs) That I, I think you would, yeah. Uh, most uh, most American audiences would probably appreciate it just for its action set pieces and stuff. Yeah, uh, if you just if like they, if you just like sci fi action, um, or if you like you know fi- a good fight sequence, or you like a good cop procedural, all of that, st- all that genre stuff plays really well. Yeah, totally. I actually ended up having a lot of fun with this one. I was like, fuck yeah. Yeah, I, I found myself getting more engrossed than I sort of realized at first. Yeah, because I knew it was two hours and 20 minutes, which isn't that long in the grand scheme of things. But I was watching it at like two in the morning. So I was like, oh, this is I might have to like do this in two halves kind of thing. And then I ended up just finishing it. Um, so it, it got me into it at least that much. All right. Uh, well, for next week. For the Netflix homework, we're going to be talking about the Dennis Villeneuve film starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Enemy, a kind of lesser known one that was released between some of the bigger projects that he wor- that they worked on together. But if anybody has anything else to say about what we discussed on this 
episode. If you have more, you know, opinions about um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Tarantino in general, everybody has an opinion on Tarantino. You're welcome to email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us and add us on Twitter at mcguffinpod or Instagram at mcguffinpod. Keith just learned how to do stories. So maybe I'll give you, and you already have the passwords for our for Instagram. I forgot them, and that was a whole phone ago, so uh, <laughs> I I have not been able to log in on my new phone, um, but yeah, you should send that to me, and maybe I'll and Look out that. for the stories, all the stories, <laughs> and you know, follow Keith also uh, to, to see the stuff he's doing over there. And uh, let's see what else. Uh, you can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, uh, Player.fm, and Pocket Cast. Uh, if you're on any of those apps or, you, you know, whichever one is your favorite, please leave us a star uh, rating and a one-sentence review. All that helps other people see the show. And um, uh, you can read my writing that I do every week for the Idaho State Journal at the Idaho State Journal's website, um, idahostatejournal.com, in their arts and entertainment section. And you can also find some of the stuff that what we I've provided for the MacGuffins website at MacGuff.in slash author slash Cassidy, where you'll also see the archives for this podcast and the RSS feed. Um, while you're there, be sure to check out the other articles written by the MacGuffin staff. Keith, what is your stuff? Yeah, like you mentioned, follow me on Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. You can also follow me on Twitter at Keith Foster Kid. Um, can check out my website, www.keithfosterkid.com. All right. And uh, be sure to also check out our friends out there doing podcasts of their, own, of their own, including Mike Fallick over at Hack Thought, Dennis and Patrick over at Almost Educational, Buddy and Alice over at Those Happy Places, um, and their other podcast, Rogue Fun, a Star Wars podcast. I believe that is the show. I'm as real as a donut, motherfucker. <laughs>